0: you have a Bible, please open to the book of 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. If you have a smartphone, um, you can Google 2 Corinthians chapter 7 ESV. You will get the text that we're looking for. We're right at the very end of our series called Redemption Applied. we're asking, what difference does the Christian faith make to the way that we live? This morning, we're looking at a subject that I am told often by pastors, uh, we're told by a subject that there's not a lot of uh, clarity in a lot of churches on this subject. All of us, all of us, I believe, have sinned privately or maybe publicly in front of other people. And afterwards, because of our sin, we've experienced feelings of guilt, shame, despondency, embarrassment, and and sadness. We've all been there, I believe. We've all felt this grief that comes upon us. It's grief that comes upon us. You feel this grief and shame and embarrassment and sadness. The Bible calls this this feeling, it calls it grief. When we grieve over our own sinfulness. Grief is not just something that we experience when someone dies, it is also something that we experience because of our own sinfulness. Last week we saw that through Jesus, God uses our trials to bring joy, maturity, and Christ-likeness. Jesus Christ and his gospel completely change trials. This week we'll see that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ can transform this grief that we experience due to our own sin and use it to bring freedom from that sin. Yes, it is possible to find freedom through grieving well over our own sin. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Second Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to read from verses 5 to 13, I'm going to do a brief explanation on the context, and we're going to unpack one verse. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, the Apostle Paul speaking to the church at Corinth. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. This is the word of the Lord. A brief but important look at what's happening here. I know that 1 Corinthians is, is a largely easy book to understand. It's got a clear structure. 2 Corinthians, less so. The Apostle Paul spent 18 months at the church in Corinth, and within three years, they had gone seriously off track. You think about this, the Apostle Paul helps found and plant your church, and within three years, they're seriously off track. And he sent them a series of letters, the most famous being 1 Corinthians. Paul then sent his uh, son in the faith, Timothy, to Corinth, only to find out that things were worse than he thought. Self-styled apostles and false teachers had come in on their private jets and attacked Paul's character to promote themselves. He is not worthy of being an apostle. The Apostle Paul then left Ephesus where he was helping start a church there and he visited Corinth himself. And he calls this his painful visit. Someone in the church openly mocked him and derided him so much so that he had to leave. And no one defended him. If you know who the Apostle Paul is at this point, you're sitting there going, that's dumb. Paul then goes back to Ephesus, fires up the typewriter, and he writes what is called the severe letter. That's what the Bible calls it, the severe letter. And he sends it with Titus. I wish we still had that letter. It doesn't exist um, anymore. In Macedonia, most likely in Philippi, Philippi, Paul runs into Titus. He goes looking. He says, I want to know what's happening in Corinth. And he runs into Titus and Titus tells Paul that the majority of the Corinthian people had repented. This church had realized they'd gone horribly off course and they wanted to be restored to Paul and they wanted and they had repented before God. It's a huge thing. This was important because it means that Paul's status as an apostle was defended. It meant this church was not going to be a bunch of write off heretics. And they were restored to joy and gospel partnership with all the other churches in the empire. Paul loved this church greatly, and he didn't want to cause them any harm. But in this case, the most loving thing that Paul could have done was to write them that severe letter and pray that they would experience godly grief leading to repentance. So we see in verse 10, this is the verse that we're going to focus on this morning, we we see in verse 10 that we have two options for dealing with our own sin. There is worldly grief, that leads to death, and then there is godly grief that produces repentance and salvation. Both of them might contain tears. Both of them might contain feelings of of sadness because of sin, but that's where the similarity ends. If you want to do some further reading on this topic yourself, I want to recommend a book called Repentance uh, by a Puritan called Thomas Watson, written in 1668. He wrote a little booklet, and a Puritan booklet apparently is a hundred-page book, um, and it is fantastic. And there's a wonderful treatment in there of the differences between godly grief and worldly grief. I believe that worldly Grief and godly grief is an incredibly important subject to understand. And worldly grief leads to death, but godly grief leads to an amazing Christ-given, Spirit-given freedom. It is worth understanding the difference. Firstly, worldly grief, which leads to death. Worldly grief, I'll define it as a, is a reaction to sin that does not give freedom from that sin. It fears only the consequences of the sin without wanting to be truly free from the sin itself. If you're a parent of kids, you see this all the time. A kid will burst into tears because they've been caught and they now realize there are going to be consequences because of what they've done wrong. An adulterer might feel really bad that they're wrecking their marriage and they're wrecking their family, but still be open to having that affair. Worldly grief ignores the gospel and it ignores the remedy of forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. In, in feeling remorse due to your sin, you're more likely to be making resolution to do better and to try harder instead of looking to Jesus for freedom. One of the things that often flows out of worldly grief is just simply looking for excuses. We might just say, the reason I do this is because of my upbringing. The reason I do this is because I have this medical condition. If I didn't have that, I wouldn't be doing the sins. We're not actually dealing with the sin itself. We could say that worldly grief is a purely emotional response to sin. It's it's not a spiritual response in the same time. Because when those feelings of guilt and shame wear off, when the emotions wear off, because they do, any desire for change is gone too therefore very temporary change. Worldly grief is often characterized and, and focused upon the horizontal effects of sin. It leaves out the vertical with God. It misses the fact that sin must first and foremost be confessed to God before the horizontal be taken care of. You know that it is right To ask someone for forgiveness. We preached, I preached on that a couple weeks ago. It is right to ask someone for forgiveness when you wrong them and you sin against them. But one of the things that worldly grief causes us to do is we go ask for forgiveness and we say, is everything okay now? Good. And it's just like, let me get this relationship working so then I can feel good about myself. And you completely leave out the fact that there's a vertical dimension to sin and that we need to be seeking God's forgiveness first. Asking forgiveness in worldly grief tends to make us just try and quiet our own guilt and get rid of it. And sadly, to use the Apostle Paul's words, worldly grief leads to death, not life. There might be an acknowledgement of God as judge. There might be a dislike for sin. But sin is not being dealt with God's way. And one of the reasons we must take this very seriously is because there are some very religious people Very religious people, people that are in church every single Sunday that only practice worldly grief. They look like they're trying to live holy lives. They look like they're trying to take sin seriously, but they've neglected this free gift of forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. Some of the most zealous, fired up religious people only practice worldly grief because they find their solution to their sin in themselves or the things they do. And sadly, a lifetime of worldly grief ends with a date with God as judge, a promise of eternal punishment, and the words, depart from me, I never knew you. It is possible to feel guilt and shame and think that you're taking your sins seriously and not find life in that grief. That is worldly grief. All of us naturally practice it. As I said, unless you're a complete psychopath, and I hope we have none of those here this morning. What I want to do, though, is look at the positive. Let's look at what godly grief is. Godly grief that leads to repentance. The definition of godly grief that I have for you is that godly grief is when one deals with sin according to the will of God. Dealing with sin biblically. Thomas Watson has six ingredients Six characteristics of godly grief. I don't think they can be improved upon. I want to use his heading to explain godly grief. The first one is sight of sin, being able to see sin. Being able to see the sin that's in your life is an immense gift from God, it's a huge gift from God. In a culture which doesn't even like to acknowledge sin, go read Facebook, go read the newspaper, see if you find the S yes word. You won't. You won't. In a culture which doesn't like to acknowledge sin, let alone go looking for it in our own life being able to see your own sin clearly seems like a very lousy gift from God, right? I'll hand that one back. It's like when you get married and you receive four rice cookers. You know, you're just like, no thanks. Got one. Um, Romans chapter 1, we see that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. And we see that there is a wrath of abandonment taking place in Romans 1. And that means, part of what that means, is that God allows people to stay in their sin. And that means as well that they're unable to see it for what it is. If you're unable to see sin in your life, it's... it's. A, not a sign of God's blessing, it's the opposite. The Corinthian church didn't see their sin clearly when Paul visited them, and as a result, it was a painful visit, leading to him having to write this severe letter, which God used to see their sin and come to repentance. Godly grief comes from not being blind to external sin and internal sin. And one of the ways that we are able to get the sight of sin is, is through two great agents that God uses. One is the Word of God and one is the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This week I was reading Jeremiah of all places, and I get to Jeremiah chapter 49, and I read about the Babylonians who trusted in themselves. And just using that verse, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, This is you. Trusting in yourself, not trusting in God. Conviction of sin, sight of sin, through the Word, by the Spirit. So firstly, sight of sin. Second ingredient is sorrow over sin. True sorrow separates worldly grief from godly grief. In worldly grief, we might have some sense of sorrow because of the consequences of our sin, because we've broken relationships. Godly grief is sorrow for the actual offense caused. Do we understand that? The actual thing that we've done wrong, not just the consequences. It is not superficial. It's not something that we just act out what Thomas Watson calls a, a holy agony within our soul because of the sin. 2 Corinthians 7, seven in our text that we just read, Titus told Paul that the Corinthian church experienced mourning because of what they had done. There was genuine remorse, not just because the relationship with Paul was broken, but because of what they had done. When we experience real sorrow over sin, we realize that making a resolution is not going to fix it. We require something more. Thirdly, this is a big one confession of sin is an important ingredient of godly grief. And as I said earlier, it is always first, our confession is always first vertical between us and God not between us and those that we may have sinned against. Sin ultimately is sin because of who it is committed against, the sinless one, the Most High God. I'm always constantly blown away and stunned when I read Psalm 51.4. David, against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This is the man who sees a woman, a married woman, commits adultery with her, gets her pregnant, and then gets her husband killed off to cover up the sin. I don't mean to be overdramatic here, but there's a sense in which David has sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba and a fair few number of people in that story. But he comes out and says, against you, God, against you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It's not to say that he didn't sin against other people, but sin is ultimately sin because of who it is committed against. And therefore, confession, not going into a little booth with a Catholic priest, my friends, not that, Confession, you and God praying, confessing what you have done wrong, confessing it before the Lord. It's so, so important. It humbles the soul and it helps remove that sin. We see it, we confess it, we seek forgiveness for it. Thomas Watson says as only someone in the 1600s would have said, sin is bad blood, bad blood confession is like opening up the vein to let the bad blood out. We want to be free from sin. We confess it to God. Not only that, not only is confession vertical, it might also have horizontal consequences. The Corinthian church they said, it said that they longed to be restored with Paul. They repented before God. They confessed their sin to God. And as a side effect of that, and as an implication, they wanted to be restored relationship to relationship. It even said that they had zeal for him. Right? They got into this situation because they mocked him and they allowed him to be ridiculed in their church. Get out of here, Paul. You're not a real apostle. Get out of here. And the side effect of this confession is they wanted to see him. They wanted to be with him. They wanted to love him. They had zeal for him. Wonderful example of those horizontal consequences of confession. One of the reasons why I believe God would like us to to confess our sin is that it also acts as a catalyst for evangelism, and I mean that. When we are most aware of what God has done for us, when we confess our sin to God and we receive His forgiveness, when we are most aware of what God has done for us, we are most willing and able to to go tell others about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Psalm 40 verse 10. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. David says, I've not hidden your deliverance within my heart. Not something that's just for me. It's something I tell others about. I declare what God has done. Fourthly, we experience shame for sin. Even if you're a quite morally good person with no real vices, we should experience legitimate shame for sin. I often get told, Jono, I'm not trying to be... I'm not trying to be arrogant here. I often get told by my non-Christian friends, what do you need Christianity for? You're such a good guy. (coughs) You're a really good person. I'm like, no, I'm not. (coughs) No, 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 you're a really good person. Like, you don't do this and this and this and this. And I have to say, no. No. Maybe in comparison to you, I don't know, but... I am the worst sinner that I know. I am the worst sinner that I know. Isn't it true? I mean, it's, it's cliched. You have some of the thoughts that I've had over the last week and we put them up on this projection over here. I'd probably want to run out of the room. And the reason why you're not mad at me for admitting that right now is because you know it's true of you too. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, who would probably make us look like a room full of degenerates in comparison, called himself the chief of sinners. So we ought to experience legitimate shame for our sin, but the difference is this, my friends, the difference is this is that we believe that God gives forgiveness of that sin in Christ. In Leviticus 16, that goat, the chief priest lays his hands on it to symbolize the transfer of the sins of the people, and it is sent out into the wilderness. That shame, that guilt for sin is sent out away from the people. It pictures what Jesus Christ has done. Yes, we experience Yes, we experience shame for our sin, but we realize that we serve a God who removes that shame from us in the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. It is not shame for the mere sake of navel-gazing. It is shame that ought to point us to the one that brings freedom from slavery to sin. Fifth, hatred for sin. Hatred for sin. This is something that I've really grown to appreciate. Godly grief includes hatred of sin. Not just some, but all of it. In worldly grief, we might, we might be uh, offended by our sin. We might have a revulsion to sin. But that usually comes because we don't like the consequences. A man... Doesn't like adultery because he realizes it'll break up his family. A man doesn't like pornography because he knows he'll feel guilty afterwards. In godly grief, we have a hatred for sin, not just because of the consequences, but because of the sin itself. Because of the sin itself. Watson says this, Christ is never loved till sin be loathed. Heaven is never longed for till sin be loathed. We do not really hate our sin until we truly set our spirit against it. We say, I need you to be gone from my life. Lust, greed, anger, whatever it is, I want you to be gone. Christ died because of you, sin. I don't want you in my life anymore. You sit against it. We see this in Second Corinthians seven, when the Corinthian church said they so strongly wanted to clear themselves. They hated their sin, what they'd done against Paul, so much that they just wanted to be cleared from it. They wanted it out of their lives. And lastly, this is where the salvation aspect comes in. Turning from sin. Turning from sin. A huge ingredient. Without this, godly grief would not be godly grief. It involves turning from sin. We call this, and the Bible calls this, repentance. Godly grief leads to repentance because it means that we turn away from going our own way in sin and we turn back to God. The turning from sin to the only means of forgiveness. And true repentance is not something that we're capable of on our own. It is possible only through the Holy Spirit who points us to Christ, to Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith, trust in Jesus Christ, what He's done on the cross, His death and His resurrection on our behalf. Repentance and faith go together. Mark one fifteen, we've quoted that a lot in this church. Right? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're both sweet graces. And we can say that it is ultimately what saves us is faith in Jesus Christ. But there is no faith in Jesus Christ without first turning from your sin, repenting and going to the cross. Saving faith is never without habitual repentance of sin. A a Scottish preacher once said this, he will not leave off repenting till he perfectly leaves off sinning. Is there anyone in this room who stopped sinning? Completely? Ah, and this is why we need this. This is why God's word was written for, to us. One of the reasons why God has given us this gift of repentance is that we might love Jesus Christ much. Habitual repenting reveals to us how great our sin is, but also how much greater our Savior is. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, he says this, I know that I am a great sinner, but Christ is an even greater Savior. Repentance tells us that. Worldly grief involves turning anywhere except to the cross. Worldly grief goes, oh, I want to be free from this guilt. I want to be free from this shame. You turn inwards. Or you turn to a person. You make a resolution. You turn anywhere except to the only place where you can receive hope. And that is Jesus Christ. The one who forgives us of our sins. What else does godly grief lead to other than repentance? The Apostle Paul says in verse 10, Salvation without regret. Eternal life with Jesus Christ. That godly grief causes us to turn to Christ and the end result of it is salvation. Eternal life with Christ. Freedom from sin for all eternity when the Protestant reformer Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Catholic Church in Wittenberg, Germany. The first one of his 95 statements, by the way, I think that's so cool, grabbing a hammer and a nail and whacking, whacking a notice up on a church door. I think that's great. But his first thesis said this, the whole of the Christian life is to be one of repentance. There's something in that. And I think if Luther was, in light of that verse, in light of that thesis, and in light of our verse, Second Corinthians seven ten, Luther was in a sense saying we are to continually practice godly grief over our sin. Some people will hear that and say, I don't want a Christianity that talks about sin so much. That's offensive. And you know what it kind of is? But human sinfulness is a daily reality that we all appreciate and that we can all understand. And God in His goodness has provided a way to receive freedom and life through that grief when we neglect godly grief and repentance from our sin, when we don't turn to Jesus Christ who died for us as a source of freedom, when we neglect those things, we're like the Israelites back in Exodus saying to Moses, Hey, I want to go back to slavery in Egypt because it was more comfortable than freedom in the promised land. Jesus gives us this gift of godly grief for our freedom. I want to close with two pictures out of Scripture. Judas and Peter. Judas Iscariot and Peter, Apostle Peter. Judas betrayed Jesus and afterwards said in Matthew 27 verse 3, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Peter denied Jesus three times. Denied he knew him, denied that he was Jesus' disciple. Both Judas and Peter afterwards felt absolutely awful due to their sin against Jesus. Makes sense, right? Judas, however, practiced worldly grief. He remained in slavery. He felt terrible, but he remained in slavery to the guilt of the sin. And it led to death. Judas went and hung himself. He couldn't handle the guilt. Peter, however, practiced godly grief. Instead of excusing his sin, he could have said, Jesus was about to die. I didn't want to die as well. I was just trying to protect my life. Instead of excusing his sin. Or running from Jesus. He went to Jesus and sought the freedom of forgiveness. All of us are naturally like Judas in that we seek to deal with our sin our way. And Judas's sin was completely forgivable. Betraying Jesus is forgivable. Selling off the Savior for 30 pieces of silver is forgivable. It is. What was not forgivable, and the suicide was forgivable too. What was not forgivable in Judas' case was that he failed to trust and seek forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That's really the only truly unforgivable sin. But instead, Jesus looks at us with, with nail-pierced hands. Nail-pierced hands. And he says to us, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So as we consider our own sin, we ought to know that there is freedom, freedom to be found in grieving well. Because in grieving well, we are pointed to the only source of forgiveness, Jesus Christ. What a topsy-turvy world that we live in because of the cross. God uses trials to make us Christ-like, and he uses grief to give us freedom. Freedom. Let's pray.